Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, folks, a quick programming note. Last week on Stay Tuned, we brought you part one of my conversation with Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance. We'll broadcast part two of that interview in the near future. Today, we bring you our special coverage of the brutal police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the ensuing civil unrest and protests calling for an end to racism and racial violence in America. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's a moment where so much is exposed. Almost any issue you can think of as far as our societal weaknesses is on display right now. Healthcare issues, jobs, the gig economy, race, gender, everything is on display. And I am prone to say that that's a good thing. That's Karen Atia. She's the global opinions editor at The Washington Post. In recent days, she has offered powerful commentary on the protests sweeping the nation. Atia published a satirical op-ed in The Post about how Western media would cover the protests if they were taking place abroad. Since joining The Post in 2014, she has expanded international visibility and diversity at the paper, including by bringing on the late Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in October 2018. We talk about the burgeoning movement we are watching take shape, the world's view on American police brutality, and the importance of being mindful in our language during this sensitive time. That's coming up. Stay tuned. My guest this week is Karen Atia. She's the global opinions editor at The Washington Post, where she has worked since 2014. In recent weeks, Atiyah's commentary has focused on the pain many are feeling about the police killing of George Floyd and the racial injustice that continues to pervade the lives of Black Americans. Our conversation covers her writing, the protests, and the anger and agony felt in our country at this decisive moment in American history. Karen Atiyah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we were discussing just before we started taping that when you ask someone how you're doing, it can end up being a longer conversation than in normal times. But I'll ask you, how are you doing? You know, I'm okay. I, I'm also, you know, I'm also kind of lucky. I, when the coronavirus really took a foothold, um, I'm actually you know, speaking to you now from, from Dallas, Texas, uh, which is my hometown. So I'm kind of hiding with mom and dad. I have hijacked a portion of their garden to like stress garden when necessary. And they've given me- <laughs> What are you growing? They've given me like really nice creative license to, let's see, I have planted gardenias, lilies, jasmine. Now, mind you, parts of the garden were in pretty shabby shape. So <laughs> uh, it's given me something to kind of, you know, renovate in a way. You know, I was just kind of navigating both- the coronavirus and the disruptions that that has caused, and now navigating this uh, the protest and what we're seeing across the nation. So it's nice, um, and it's nice to be able, you know, to spend time with mom and dad and family yeah, of course. as an adult. So I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I could be sleeping better. I could be eating a little better, you know, 
some days tricks for dinner. Do you know what day, do you know what day it is? Have you lost track of the days like I have? Uh, today's Wednesday, right? Let me check. Yes. I should note that we're taping on Wednesday, June 3rd at around 10.30 in the morning. So once I ask the question, how are you doing? I need to also ask the very broad but important question, given everything that's going on in the wake of the coronavirus and in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the protests, how do you think America is doing? Where is America right now? Well, it's just like, and I, I keep I keep saying this, it's just like the coronavirus and, and the fact that we were seeing the rising uh, death tolls, the fact that we couldn't even get adequate testing, we still can't really get adequate testing, seeing the images of, of health workers scared to death because they have to rely on basically some of them wearing garbage bags. I mean, I was like, we've hit rock bottom like this feels like a rock bottom moment for you know american democracy honestly because a public health crisis is a political crisis very often i would say and then within the span of just gosh seven eight days we went from you know a viral video of a woman a white woman in new york city calling threatening to call the police on an african-american man christian cooper we went from that to the murder of George Floyd and that viral video to like protests and uprisings and crazy images of violence and, and arrest. And now we're under curfew. So all that to say, when I say I thought we hit rock bottom with coronavirus, it feels like rock bottom has a trap door <laughs> and we've fallen through the trap door. As some people say, it's always, it's always darkest just before it goes completely black. Yeah. Right. And I think but at the same time, it's a moment where so much is exposed, like, and we can't run, we can't go anywhere. Like we literally, even though yes, states are opening up and there are plenty of people who are going out and honestly risking their health to, you know, go outside. And it's almost any issue you can think of as far as our societal weaknesses is on display right now. Healthcare issues jobs, the gig economy, race, gender issues, you know, women who are having to juggle, you know, healthcare uh, or childcare, excuse me, and working. I mean, everything is on display. And I am prone to say that that's a good thing. Yeah, it's it's quite mixed. And I just kind of feel like particularly in the last several days, it's, it's a time to for action to like not really be quiet. We can't hide. We need to talk about these things. We're literally sitting at home. What else are we going to do? Well, everyone's at home. It's right. It's it's hard to distract exactly with other work. So look, I've been around a while. I'm a bit older than you are, but you have covered protests and written about some of these issues a lot more than, than I have observed. But this is pretty remarkable. Day after day after day, not in one city. I mean, Rodney, the Rodney King protests back in 1992, I think were largely limited to Los Angeles. This is widespread, not only in the United States, there are images of large protests in Europe, in Amsterdam, in Paris. This is not the first time this kind of tragic killing has occurred at the hands of a white officer where the victim is an unarmed black man. Why do you think, or do you have an explanation for why now the protests are so massive and so widespread? Yeah, even as you were speaking and as we were thinking about things going viral, I mean, uprising <laughs> is going viral as well. Even just this morning before you guys called, I was looking at a, a video on Twitter from New Zealand of people doing the traditional haka, the Maori ceremonial ritual in support of Black Lives Matter. I guess, you know, to a certain extent, the way that we can very quickly, you know, take a video and see injustice being done is also the same tool with which we can capture inspiration in a way and capture that spirit, I guess, of protesting, of speaking out, of basically calling for calling for justice to create better societies. So 
I think it speaks to technology, honestly. We know that, yes, technology can be a tool that for surveillance and for oppression, targeting, all of that. But again, it can also be a way to connect us all in many of these struggles that very much are global, that we were already, I mean, it's not just Americans sitting at home. Many people around the world are still dealing with the coronavirus as well. So there really isn't anywhere to run or, or to go, except in a way out into the streets. And this notion that people are, especially in places where the coronavirus has not been controlled, that they're willing to risk their lives, basically. Well, it's a remarkable thing. I, I remember thinking that, you know, you have approaching 25 or 30% unemployment, 100,000 people dead, lots and lots of failures of leadership at the state level, the local level, the national level. That didn't bring people out. But the death of George Floyd did. Mm. And it's a pretty remarkable mm. thing. How long do you think it goes? <laughs> That's the question. I mean, it, it's... Uh... We're in what, um, day yeah, eight nine or, nine, yeah. uh, or eight? Clearly, if anybody saw me on Twitter, I, I've lost all sense of time. I thought we were in June and I was like, year's half over, yay. And people were like, uh, <laughs> it's still June. Um, how long does it go? It goes as long as we're willing to sustain. I mean, that's, that's a question. How long are we willing to go at it? And what are we willing to do? And not just folks like you and me who are, writing and talking about it, but just literally the people in the streets. And maybe there is that feeling. I mean, for many people, unfortunately, with the unemployment now, they don't have jobs to go to tomorrow morning. And in a lot of ways, I mean, my feeling is almost like we are at rock bottom. <laughs> so what do we have to lose in a way? And enough is enough, whether it is I mean, at the end of the day, whether it's police brutality or the handling, the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic, it's a failure of leadership. Like our people are being failed over and over and over and over and over again. They're so you say, tired. you know, I want to ask this question. I hope it's an appropriate question to ask. What is the principal emotion that you and others in the black community are feeling? Is it weariness? Is it being fed up? Is it anger? Is it something else? Is it a combination of things? I think it is weariness. You know, personally, it took me a long time, and I, I still can barely do it. I, I a long time to be able to watch the George Floyd video because I've seen so many videos and so many videos that brought about outrage, digital outrage, hashtags, and yet maybe in that particular city where a killing happened, there were marches and, and protests and crackdowns. But I think for me, it's a weariness, but I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that like, this is the first time since I would say, you know, kind of Black Lives Matter became more in the public awareness in what, 2014 or so. Like, this is the first time I think I've had white friends and acquaintances and colleagues like say, oh my God, we're sorry. Like, we get it. What can we do? Like, this is enough. This feels different. Black folk aren't surprised. We've been living with this for generations. And it's not just here in this country. It's Black people in the West, in France, and in, in the UK who've been talking about these issues for such a long time. And we kind of doubted. We wondered, like, okay, all these videos happen and nothing changes. You almost think, like, it's just, it's almost trauma porn consuming this death and then nothing happens. But this time, this time it feels different. And unfortunately it feels different in the sense that we're seeing just how willing at least this administration wants to go in terms of deploying weapons of the state against largely peaceful protests. So that feels scary at the same time. While I, I feel a little heartened and I feel like this is different and I feel dare I say, a little bit of hope. I'm also quite scared when curfews are hitting these cities and when you hear announcements of some cities saying that media should not be here after dark. Like That makes me worried for people who could be killed, could be hurt, and have been arrested. It is still a frightening thing, yeah, I wanna, um, I wanna, the, the pushback. I wanna, but I want to press you on that hope. a little bit because... You mentioned Twitter and you've been tweeting and I've been following your Twitter account avidly for a long time and everyone should. You posted something this week. I, I don't know if it's a verse. It could be a verse. 
you posted it in verse form. You, you wrote this. When white men march armed with their privilege and guns, America doesn't do much, perhaps a little shrug. When black people march armed with anger and grief, America unleashes all hell just to suppress our speech. What did you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know what sort of like Langston Hughes inspired, like middle of the night. I, think it's delirium. Pretty I don't think it's I was delirium. in. Uh, I, I definitely, I, I, I was just unleashing emotion. I, I, because even before all of this happened, we were seeing with the coronavirus, the, the double standards in this country in terms of who was allowed to use force and violence to get their point across. And so those images of armed white folks um, in the capitals in, in Michigan with their assault weapons demanding their way and demanding the country reopen. And when we say the country reopen, it usually means essential workers who are usually black and brown, non-white, going back to work to help keep this economy afloat and serving everybody, putting themselves at risk. So when you see that and the police aren't tear gassing them, they aren't violently dispersing them, they aren't arresting them, they're allowing them to vent. And then we see now here, largely, again, largely peaceful black folk taking to the street after someone has been violently killed. And we're met with an insane amount of force and not just force against black people. I want to say that the pushback and the force, it's white people, it's brown people, it's Latino people, it's old people. It's, uh, you know, the videos of, of NYPD, their cars ramming into crowds. I saw a video of an, I can't remember the city now, but like the, an older white gentleman with a cane who is, I, it looked like waiting at a bus stop, who was just being, he was shoved to the ground by a police officer, a SWAT team. And it's just like, you just see how this didn't just start today, but just how this country is so quick to use violence to quell any, you know, sort of uprising that would threaten our racial caste order in this country with white men on top and controlling a monopoly, I would say, of the violence in this country in terms of the state. I mean, protesters don't have riot gear. We don't have tear gas. We don't have, you know, all of these just don't have the amount of power that the police forces do. Again, all of these differences are in how we, again, basically treat white and black people in this country, including white and black speech and protests is just all on display. And it's just incredible that like black folks can take to the streets to basically say, stop killing us. And then the state responds saying, get out of the streets or we will arrest you, possibly kill you for demanding to not be killed. And I think that now, I hope that now people are aware, but this is where I would have a question for you, Preet. I mean, how do you see things? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's great that people are wanting to hear what those of us who've been sort of screaming and, and crying and for many of us literally dying, I guess, to be heard. But I'm just curious about how non-Black people are seeing this and how you're feeling about it. Well, I'm angry like everyone else. You know, I have, I've had a career in law enforcement. So I've seen some of these issues up front and have been called upon to examine them. And I, like a lot of other prosecutors, have had cases where we weren't able to do justice for the families. And that, you know, that hurts a lot. In some cases, we were. We brought a lot of cases in, you know, against law enforcement officials in Rikers Island I've spoken to the families of people, including inmates who have been killed at the hands of you know, racist, violent men. So I know it from a professional standpoint. I'm not white, but I'm also not black. So I'm somewhere in between. And so I've been taking to heart some advice that, that I've heard people give, which is, you know, this is a time to listen. This is a time to understand what black people are going through and what their opinions are. And maybe people who aren't black should be a little quieter you know, during these times and understand in a more visceral way than they have before how much pain there is, how much anger there is, and how much need for, the, for reform there is. So unlike the unusual times when I run off at the mouth on a lot of things, um, some of which I'm expert at, some of which I'm not, I tweeted the other day that I'm going to tweet a little bit less and read and listen a little bit more. 
Do you have any other advice? That means a lot um, to hear you say that. I mean, that's that's really the baseline, right? I mean, just people do not go out into the streets and do not burn things to the ground if they felt like they were being heard in the appropriate ways. You know what I mean? That is at the very least, I think what people are asking for is to be listened to and heard. And I would, you asked earlier about how long you think this will go. And and again, I don't know, but I do think it seems like white folks and, and folks who just have more privilege, whatever that looks like, are taking stock, which is great. And even we have to consider, I'm sure that those in law enforcement, these are their communities too. They should be. If you're a black police officer, I mean, we've seen those stories actually of, of black law enforcement being mistaken for, well, not mistaken, but singled out as criminals and being at the the receiving end of the discrimination and, and the force. But I hope is that it shouldn't take cities burning and people out in the streets risking their lives in order for us to be heard. And I would hope that when this particular phase passes or that we move on into the next phase, that we can feel like we are more, our voices or perspectives are more valued, that they are part of the American experience and the American stories. And that at the end of the day, when we are calling for reform and calling for police reform, healthcare, jobs, it's not just for us, right? Like all Americans benefit. Like if I'm protesting against a system of impunity that will kill me, right? It's also protesting a system of impunity that could kill a white suburban kid without I mean, it happens. <laughs> it, it does happen. It lifts all boats. So I think this mindset that like it's a black issue, it does disproportionately affect us. But fundamentally, it's about American society. And it's also to help protect, frankly, white people. Like white people are also putting their, their the allies, I would say, are also putting their bodies on the line. There is a long history of white folks who have faced also the brunt of white supremacy in this country. They're called race traitors. I've talked to some people, some white influencers actually, who said that when they started posting about Black Lives Matter and about this moment, they lost a lot of followers. Now, again, granted, like that is a very first world problem. I get that. But it's just to say that allies, non-Black, white allies, anybody who is threatening to disrupt this sort of longstanding racial order that we have in this country the system will push back against you too. So again, we know that this system causes harm and death and destruction. And so, you know, it really is a moment where we absolutely should all be in this together because we'll all just be better for it once this oppressive system falls. You mentioned cops, and there have been some images we've seen on television of cops kneeling with protesters. And you've expressed some skepticism about that what's your what's your thought about those images yeah they can miss me with that (laughs) (laughs) look first of all on multiple levels right because number one where was all this solidarity when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling and has been effectively blackballed from the NFL for several years now for silently taking a knee during the anthem. And that caused an intense uproar. And not just amongst, you know, people who you would think, you know, oh, super racist white people. No, like people who are, you know, nice, liberal would just say, you know, I I get what he's saying, but like, that's just, he's turning people off to his cause. Or, you know, a lot of the same rhetoric that actually Martin Luther King used to talk about. And so, you know, I look at that and I'm just like, okay, so now when cops are kneeling, it's a feel-good gesture of solidarity. But when Colin Kaepernick was doing it, and not just Colin Kaepernick, we remember that people across the country, students, Black students, people were also taking that same gesture, again, peacefully, and getting kicked out of school, suspended, 
jobs threatened for doing something that was peaceful. And now people are wondering like, oh my gosh, why are they burning cities? I'm like, we've been trying to have. Why not not take a knee? Yeah. Oh, that was, that was try. Yeah. Right. You wrote this article and it's from the perspective of outside of America. Cause I guess we can lose sight of what's going on, not have a good perspective when we're sort of in it. And you wrote a piece sort of satirical entitled how Western media would cover Minneapolis if it happened in another country and use the language that reporters from outside of America might use. And there are a lot of good paragraphs here, but one that, that comes to mind, given what you were just saying, is this. And and these are, I think you made up quotes and fictionalized people, but this is one. Quote, sure, we get it that black people are angry about decades of abuse and impunity, said G. Scott Fitz, a Minnesotan and member of the white ethnic majority. But going after a target crosses the line. Can't they find a more peaceful way like kneeling in silence? And the article goes on in that vein you got some strong reaction to it. What were some of the responses? <laughs> um, again, this was, I don't write these very often. This was not in your Langston Hughes mode. The, this was a different mode. This was in, I guess I've been putting on a lot of like different character modes, different costumes in a way. So I, I mean, the last time I wrote something like this was actually after Charlottesville. And I think for me, like I, I do this when I feel things have gotten so absurd and hypocritical that sometimes fiction is the only way to kind of laugh at the utter absurdity of certain sort of mindsets and and worldviews that are small and limited. And sometimes the only way to do that is to go bigger and outside. So mostly the response has been positive. I think I have gotten some, I mean, I was very deliberate with some of the language, some of the foreign correspondentes that I was using, like regime change or extrajudicial ethnic, ethnic minority and ethnic majority. Yeah, you know, a former British colony, because you know you got to remind the Americans where they came from, right? Um, but I think most of the most of the reactions have been positive. I mean, I did get some sort of miffed, mostly white male correspondents, is like, "How dare you? Like, you're mocking us!" And I'm like, you know, well. If you're doing your job well, you have nothing to worry about because basically what I'm trying to do is to mock mediocrity and laziness and how we look at the world and how we tend to view, you know, us as this shining beacon of light and democracy and Dunkin' Donuts, whatever. (laughs) And the rest of the world is the field. The rest of the world is the rest, the center or the metropole and the, the periphery. And so very often those of us, my, my parents are from West Africa. And for a long time, I just grew up with these stereotypes and cliches of, of Africans that we were poor and violent and lived in huts and swung from trees. And I would see that in, I mean, not exactly that, but that sort of lazy two-dimensional reporting and coverage. So this was a chance to flip the script in a way that was hopefully funny, but also a way to just imagine a different world, I think. Like, it's not completely about trying to, to make fun of things, but just imagine, right, if if we really did pay attention to the fact that right now, as much as we are talking about race and, and Black issues here in the United States, I'm always aware that Blackness is not just American, that in terms of the Black world, Africa right now, has been handling, at least hasn't seen the coronavirus epidemic ravage it as everybody predicted that it would. And that's why I wanted to highlight that in the in the piece that, hey, maybe that's a great place for Black people to find asylum right now, because we have these perceptions that Black countries are automatically dysfunctional. And I guess, you know, I just wanted to imagine a world where at least Black Americans had a place of safety, I guess, uh, a refuge. So it was fun to write, not so much fun to deal with the, you know, foreign correspondent, like white man explaining to me as if I haven't been a correspondent. They'll get over it. <laughs> yeah, I'm over it. I'm good. I'm just like, <laughs> step your game up. Like, don't come to me. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. 
you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your website look pretty great, too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. Here's another thing that goes on. I'm not sure how people appreciate it. And you've written about, I'm just going to quote back to you all my favorite stuff that you've written. You know, at times like this in particular, lots of folks, including white folks, non-black folks, quote Martin Luther King Jr. You know, they go on the Google and they look up quotes and everyone embraces him, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, you name it. And, you know, you wrote about this and you said in, in an article from a couple of years ago, quote, the whitewashed version of a heroic, non-confrontational king ignores the fact that he favored direct action and confrontation and was painted as an extremist in his time. White Americans hated and jailed him. And ultimately, it was a white American who murdered him in broad daylight, end quote. How do you react to the sort of blithe invocation of Martin Luther King by people who may not fully respect the rights of black people to protest in the way that they are? I think the one of the best uh, interpretations of this, um, I would call it a, I don't know if anybody's coined it, but uh, uh, this MLK reflex <laughs> that happens every time Black people, ex- we express our anger in the streets. You know, I would say that taking Martin Luther King out of that context, out of that context that he did favor pretty, you know, confrontational, again, non nonviolent, but when we say we have to remember, like Martin Luther King and Gandhi, actually, their philosophies of nonviolence was so that they knew the states they were up against. They knew that the forces that they were fighting against were going to use force. And they knew that if perhaps people were able to see the, frankly, evil force that was being used on peaceful people, that that would help to change minds. Right. So. I think that this MLK reflex that we often see um, in these moments after black uh, public black anger is not about, they're not telling us, you know, if they read their history, they, and Martin Luther King was here today, they would probably not like him, honestly. What they're saying when they say, please read Martin Luther King, they're telling us to be quiet. They're looking for somebody to pacify the anger. And that's not what Martin Luther King was about. He was not, he was not quiet. He was not quiet. And I, I keep having to tell people, I mean, even at, you know, the post, the post was not kind in those days to Martin Luther King. I believe there was, I believe it was after one of his Vietnam speeches, something like 168 newspapers denounced him or or criticized him. He was hated White America did not like Martin Luther King. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact 
that there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. Again, when we see this MLK reflex of this, you know, sort of saintly, quiet black man, that's not, not only is that not what happened, but everyone seems to forget that he was murdered by America, by, by a white man. They killed him. They killed him. Notwithstanding, notwithstanding his nonviolence. Not, yes, exactly. So I actually got into a discussion with somebody about this the other day. You know, I would argue it's this is where we look at how systems and how society works. I mean, the character assassination, he was threatened multiple times. His house was firebombed. Uh, again, his character was assassinated. He was surveilled. The white establishment at the time was trying to kill him for a long time, trying to silence him. And up until the moment that they actually physically murdered him. And then after that, we know what happened. Washington, D.C. erupted into riots, destroyed parts of the city. And not too long after that, civil rights legislation was passed. So again, there was a lot of bloodshed, a lot of violence in order for at least legislative change to come. And so I, you know, I just wish people, A, would read a book (laughs) um, before speaking and just blithely, you know, not understanding whose name they're taking in vain. But I think it is, it is a moment to look back into history and to understand that we've, we've in some ways been here before. In many ways, this is different. But yeah, a short answer to your very good question. I usually just tell people, you're not saying what you think you're saying when you're asking us to follow Martin Luther King's example. We actually are. And you still don't like it all these decades later. Martin Luther King was not only not quiet, he was also not patient. Nope. And if anybody has read Letter from Birmingham Jail, which I've read a thousand times, it's all about impatience. And some people have pointed out, but most people forget that one of the targets of King's frustration and I guess you can say anger was who? It was the white moderate, right? Who who expressed misgivings about going too fast, even though it had been hundreds of years. So, you know, people people forget all of that too. But you know, what you're hearing you talk, I wonder, do you think we're lacking of a leader? like Martin Luther King for this time or no? You know, and this is where I, I am very interested in what sort of our, our, our new activists would have to say about this. I mean, I'm not even sure. I think that the thing with, with MLK and with the leaders in those times, I mean, they were fighting against you know, actual legislation. I mean, actual segregation. I mean, a, a myriad of issues. I mean, um, again, Martin Luther King, uh, despite all the modern whitewashing, Martin Luther King was very against uh, the Vietnam War, um, was very against uh, a myriad of, of issues and in, in American aggression, not just uh, domestically. But I'm not even, to be honest with you, Priya, I'm not even sure if, if that is the right question. I think what, what we are, well, first of all, what we're seeing is, you know, the people who are going out into the streets and demanding justice, I would say that is a form of leadership and they have forced us all to pay attention. Even though we don't all know their names, there's not a central figure that has emerged. I think to a certain extent, in a way, what is heartening, um, at least today uh, on Wednesday, June 3rd, (laughs) what I feel is heartening in this moment is seeing that people aren't waiting for a leader in a way, like we're all kind of comforting, trying to comfort each other and learn from each other. And I feel like it's this sort of collective solidarity that is emerging. I mean, we'll see. We're only in what day, day nine. Um, There is space and there's time for that to emerge. But I feel like people aren't really looking for a leader. We just realized, I think people are kind of starting, I hope, to take a little bit of personal responsibility in speaking and in listening right now, which is good. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. 
Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I want to talk about language before we end. And certain phrases and terms that people just invoke kind of thoughtlessly and other phrases people just sort of willfully don't seem to want to understand. And, you know, lots of folks, well-meaning and otherwise, just sort of use the term people of color when they're talking about George Floyd or other incidents like this. And I've been thinking about that too. And I take to heart what some folks have been saying, which is, you know, also considering what I said earlier, you know, I'm not white, but I'm also not black. And so what is the utility of the term people of color when we're talking about this kind of violence that has been directed at black men for such a long time? Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a whole, I think, podcast episode in and of itself. Um, And it's a great, it's a great question. Well, first of all, there are distinct implications, even in this phrase, people of color, first of all, it assumes that white people are the standard and that everybody else has color. And when you say people of color, it automatically racializes those people in relation to whiteness. And so I think in many ways, sometimes I'm a bit, if we get down to that kind of granular linguistic level and what it represents, sometimes I'm a bit frustrated by that because it maintains that, I mean, frankly, there are more people of color, quote unquote, in this world than there are white people. But because the way that our our world is organized and because, you know, through centuries of white supremacy, white folks are the norm or the standard. Everybody else is of color. So that's one thing. Second, I think that, to be honest, I actually saw this morning a, a really good clip from a, it was on Instagram, from a, uh, I believe he's of South Asian descent. I, I couldn't, I, I think so. And he was just basically talking about this sort of model minority myth and how it relates to whiteness and blackness and how um, even to a certain extent I can relate to this because my parents were immigrants, that black people did not have a choice in coming to this country, Black Americans did. But for those that are immigrants from um, from the Middle East, from Asia, from South Asia, India, wherever, uh, they often came because they were educated, because you know they they occupied a certain privileged class and were afforded, frankly, privileges that Black Americans didn't have. Um, it's not to say that they were immune from racism, obviously. But that, uh, you know, there are these discussions and, and questions. This, this, uh, I think he's an 18-year-old, quite young. I'll send it to you after this, actually. It was really inspiring. But he laid it out pretty well that he's just like, we traded off of our privilege while Black people were still struggling. Like, now is the time for us to speak up because they're also fighting our battles, too. And so when it comes to, to sort of quote unquote people of color, um, also, you know, Latinos and stuff, I think that there's a tendency to silo these issues of race into just, okay, this is a black person's, uh, a black people issue. Immigration, oh, that's a, a, a Latino, Hispanic issue or Latinx, excuse me. For me, particularly as the daughter of African immigrants, I'm like, well, immigration is also a black issue as well. <laughs> Racial justice, I mean, the Latinx community, the Muslim community, also when it comes to police uh, violence and surveillance, um, they have their own experiences and stories to discuss as well. So again, reform when it comes to, you know, what happened with the Muslim communities after 9-11 and the surveillance there or the racism against or, or Islamophobic racism against Muslims and against uh, Sikhs even um, for their for their head coverings. I mean, I think so much of this, we should also be having those black and intra POC conversations as well. Too often it's like, it's either black or white and those other communities are not brought in or these other communities feel like it's not their problem. And it is everybody's problem, <laughs> like I said before. So I'm really appreciating, like I said, so many different people that I wouldn't expect to speak up in this moment are 
not only speaking up, they're just expressing. And it's not that everybody needs to know everything. And, you know, frankly, it's not like every black person has read uh, Frederick Douglass or Angela Davis or critical race theory. Like we are speaking a lot of times from our experiences. And there are plenty of us who have done that work and have done the research in our academics in these social forces that shape our society. But I think right now I'm appreciating the humility in this moment. I'm appreciating that there are a lot of people who are just saying, I don't know what to do, but something needs to happen. And I feel like we can work with that. I remember after the travel ban, not to compare these two things, but people would email me and say, I, 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 wanted, I want to do something. I'm not a lawyer. Tell me who to give money to. <laughs> Literally wanted to put their pocketbook where their heart was when the president said no Muslims can come to this country anymore. So I think there are a lot of people who maybe don't understand the issues perfectly, but are good people and want to do something and are sort of hopefully paying attention. And even just going out into the streets is action. Let me end by asking you not to put a lot of pressure on your shoulders, but what should come of this? There have been some people who have said, you know, it, it's great that this protest is going on and it's so widespread. I've seen a couple of people say within the black community, well, you know, what are the things that are being asked for? What's the list of reforms? What are the concrete things? I mean, you mentioned King and the, and the movement in the 60s. There were very tangible things that were seeking to be changed. Is that necessary here? Or is just this, this moment of people waking up and paying attention and learning and listening enough? Well, first of all, even though this has gone viral, for lack of a better word, in terms of the protests, um, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact uh, that we still need to see what happens with this investigation in Minneapolis, right? We still need to see what outcomes, what any trial or legal outcomes and accountability happens for the officer who killed George Floyd. In fact, as we speak, the, the George Floyd's funeral is, is tomorrow on, on Thursday. Uh, so I think obviously within a very local context, uh, specific to Minneapolis, and uh, again, a lot of these issues don't happen in a vacuum. And I'm also learning a lot um, about Minneapolis's, uh, frankly, quite disappointing police community relations record. And so if, if all of this could lead to reform and for Minneapolis to become a better, safer place for African-Americans, that is tangible and that is good. I wouldn't want to discount that. Um, I think similar to, to Ferguson, promises to reform the local, in the local context with policing and with some of these like bail reform, um, these petty fines and tickets that were landing people trapped in the, in the Ferguson St. Louis uh, legal system, all that had a spotlight and uh, were addressed. But on a larger scale, I mean, I think that's a very good question. I mean, I think on a larger scale, I mean, for a while, a, a number of people have been saying that at the very least, why do some of these police departments have gear that we see being used abroad, like these war weapons, right? So the sort of demilitarization of the police has been an issue for a while. So looking for perhaps initiatives to, to address that. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's a different case than in Martin Luther King's time. I mean, we, there are so many asks because it is a harder fight because what we're fighting against is now very structural and very systemic from housing and, and districting or, or gerrymandering gentrification to policing, to healthcare. So I mean, I guess what we're pushing for, which is kind of maybe the harder push, is a change in attitudes. Yeah. You know, less racism. That's not something you can legislate so easily. Yeah, right. I, it's not. But, but we do know, right? We do know. I don't want to make the impression that we haven't at least seen around the world instances of countries that have police forces that are trained in de-escalation that I believe in, I think it's Germany, and someone can fact check if I'm wrong, but um, I believe there are some countries where if a police officer discharges a firearm, that automatically triggers an investigation, lots of paperwork, even just to fire a bullet. So meaning the, the impulse isn't shoot first, 
it's largely to, to think first. So I think there is there are models around the world of if we're talking just about you know police reform that people have been pointing to for years. But yeah, uh, ultimately, um, and of course, you know, it's pushing to vote, perhaps pushing to vote out the person in office who decided to threaten military force on largely peaceful protesters. That is a definite ask. (laughs) But I agree with you. And I, I think right now we're kind of in the early stages of this like new pushback. And there, I hope, will be very concrete asks that will come out of this. But for now, we're like, we're in the expression phase. We're in the emotion phase. Um, and, but I agree with you. This is now the time to coalesce around very specific wins, I suppose, that can help carry the momentum forward so that people don't feel, I hope people don't feel defeated. I, I already feel strangely, which I haven't felt in a while, at least I, ha- I feel a little hopeful. Um, I've also been looking at protest dances from around the world on my Twitter this morning. So I'm, I'm in a I'm in a good mood. It's just you know, like dancing keeps the spirits up. It Singing does. keeps the spirits up, and it's just so beautiful to see the way that there are there are nonviolent but but beautiful ways to express discontent, elegant ways to express rage. And I, I'm very heartened that there are other people who in some ways are helping to take the burden off of Black people to call for this. It's exhausting to be angry all the time and sad all the time. It feels good to have other people share in that emotion. That already is work. That already is, is, is labor that I feel taken off of me for in this moment. So yeah, that's how I feel today, at least. Um, and I, I don't want to discount that. I, I do think, I, I, I can't speak obviously for every Black person, but for me personally, talking to you today, I feel a sense of hope and that the burden feels a little more shared than it did in, in recent years. That's a pretty good note to end on. I want to say, you know, there were lots and lots of things that we mentioned that we could have gone on for for a long time. One thing we didn't mention, and we're going to have to have you back to talk about is I know the book that you've been working on very hard about Jamal Khashoggi. You were his editor at the Washington Post, and that's another whole tragic story that could fill volumes and will fill at least one volume. So we'll have you back when that book comes out. Thank you for your writing. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for spending the time with us today. And I hope to talk to you very soon. Karen Atia, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Be safe. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Karen Atia. Our guest next week is historian Heather Cox Richardson. Email us at letters at cafe.com with your questions and comments. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.